0: I'm Rick Nelson, and welcome to PSYCOP Talks Winter Ops, the podcast devoted to all things winter maintenance. The Snow and Ice Cooperative Program, or PSYCOP for short, is one of Ashto's technical service programs. One of our primary objectives is to share information about winter maintenance, operations, and road weather. So far, this winter of 2022-23 has been a tough one for many parts of the country, Atmospheric rivers, blizzards, ice, and flooding are just some of the severe weather events that have paid a visit. Now, when you're busy responding to these events, you assume that when the storm's over and you're recovered, you're done. However, like the holiday feasts, winter storms almost always have leftovers you have to deal with at a later date. On this episode, we're going to visit with pavement and roadside expert, Greg Duncan from Applied Pavement Technologies about some of these leftovers you might need to chew on during the summer. Hi Greg, and welcome to PSYCOP Talks Winter Ops.
1: Hi Rick, happy to be with you.
0: You know, Greg, you're no stranger to severe weather. You've had a, a long distinguished career with the Tennessee DOT including a stint as chair of PSYCOP.
1: Yes, thank you. Happy to have been involved with that.
0: Greg, when we think about what winter delivers to us, what are some of the things that cause problems for
1: pavements later on down the road? Oh, gosh, Rick. So the um, the idea, like with most engineering projects uh, with pavements, you're asking, where is the water and how is the water getting into my pavement and what's what's the water going to do to my pavement? Long term, so lots of natural phenomenon uh, going on there as as we have freeze thaw issues and cold weather and uh, there's lots of lots of opportunity for pavement damage to be done in the winter time.
0: You know, Greg, you, you talk about freeze thaw, and 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 I know when they're when you're designing pavements, you know, there's a couple of things you always think about. You know, one is is the loading, right? The, the number of easels that the pavement's going to see over time, and the okay. other one are these environmental uh, impacts. How cold is it going to get, and what kinds of freeze thaw cycles it's going to see? You know, it it, it it strikes me that if you're in the way way north. And and you get one or two freeze thaws. You know, it's like in Minnesota, it goes below freezing in in uh, November and it stays that way until March. So you've got one cycle, right? That's a lot different than when you get a little farther south. It is freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing.
1: You're you're right, Rick. That's uh, lots of geographical challenges. Uh, you know, working with folks in Alaska, they're dealing with frost heave and some of those things. They may only have one. Uh, one long cycle, but there's lots of stresses that can be introduced there. And dealing with frost heave in particular, you're, you're thinking about, well, that water is typically coming up from underneath the pavement. So we might design layers in there to interrupt that capillary action, the water coming up into the, into the pavement, because when those ice lenses form, there's really no no way to prevent that pavement from moving upward. So, that's one of the issues that we see, and that those freeze thaw cycles also lead to uh, our favorite post storm activity: uh, pothole patching and identifying what's going on with where that's happening. Uh, what are our hot spots? Where have we had to patch before? And that's you know that's that's pretty uh, detrimental to a maintenance budget uh, to be uh, working a storm on overtime and, and having to work you know a 36, 48 hour stint and then move right into a, a pothole patching season where where you don't have good good materials and you're reacting to an issue so you're not able to do uh, you know the best fix to go back in that situation so but potholes are interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: So really the two prime culprits here are, are moisture and the freezing temperatures, right? Because when water freezes, it swells up and the flexible pavement may or may not be able to take it.
1: Right. Even a rigid pavement, um, you know, that that the phenomenon of, of water expanding as it freezes can really put a lot of tensile pressure on on pavement structures. So, you know. Most pavements are designed with a drainage layer underneath to try to alleviate part of that and allow water that does get into the pavement structure to, to leave, uh, you know, flow out horizontally. However, just the, the natural aging process of, of pavements, where you have cracks develop in the surface, uh, that's really the impetus for where potholes are forming. So that, that water entering from the surface Uh, not being able to reach the drainage layer perhaps and, and becoming locked into that pavement and then freezing, uh, expanding, putting that tensile pressure on the, on the cracked area can really lead to the, the enlargement of the cracks. And then that cycle back and forth, uh, ultimately results in a, uh, void opening up or the, uh, pavement becoming so deteriorated that it that it comes out of the hole.
0: You know, Greg, when I was a district engineer, one of the least favorite activities that maintenance wanted to do is filling cracks. But in reality, it's one of the most important things that they can do to help preserve that pavement.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, I go back to the study that has gone on at Minroads and Auburn University, the National Center for Asphalt Technology, looking at the effectiveness of, of crack treatments. And they found that in every situation, installing a crack treatment uh, makes the pavement more resistant to that water infiltration. So a, a crack treated pavement is a drier pavement than if it's not. And so it's it's typically the lowest cost activity that we can apply. And, and you need to do a uh, correctly use good techniques, but crack treatments are very effective, very cost-effective.
0: Now, Greg, you mentioned rigid pavements, and I think of the the joints in concrete paving. Those joints, even though you're not calling them a crack, it's not like decracking or things like that. I mean, it's just the joint. Taking care of those joints is super important as well.
1: It is, yes. Those joints are designed to move and open and close. Uh, according to the temperature changes and you know that makes a vulnerable spot in the pavement area and it warrants uh, doing good joint joint treatments there so um, a lot of my colleagues that are more experienced with concrete pavements you know there's a debate of to seal or not to seal uh, I'm a fan of sealing those uh, once they're once they're open certainly uh, enabling the the pavement to withstand, you know, to, to stay dry, keep that water out. Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of states use abrasives in their winter maintenance program, and uh, you know, you fill those joints full of something that's incompressible. Uh, as those pavements try to, you know, swell up and shrink because of the temperature, it's like you're 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 designing some a failure point in there.
1: Right, that can lead to blow ups in the summertime
0: you know greg you you talked about potholes a little bit um explain the pothole cycle how does how does that pothole cycle work
1: oh boy uh so there's a lot of good graphics uh, out on the internet uh just looking up the anatomy of a pothole there's a uh, a plethora of examples of how that happens i'm a firm believer that potholes happen because water infiltrates our pavements in an uninvited way. There may be uh, ways that pavements uh, allow water to move through them. Open graded friction courses are an example. Drainage layers are an example. But uh, potholes, for me, form uh, as water enters the surface layers of your pavement through cracks and then sets up a fort there and freezes and expands that that material, sort of loosens it around the crack, may form a secondary crack. And then the thaw happens and the water uh, either leaves the pavement, dries out, or it stays in there and it gets refrozen again and expands even further. And so that continual, um, it's almost internal abrasion where where that uh, expanding uh, water is, is causing that loss of strength around the, the opening there. And that becomes a pothole. We see it form quite frequently inside an alligator cracking pattern. So multiple, multiple cracks allowing water to infiltrate that pavement structure, even into the subgrade and deteriorating the uh, components of the pavement, you know, really weakening it. And when the uh, thaw happens, that material gets loose and comes out.
0: In, in your experience, are there a lot of states that try to do uh, pothole patching in the wintertime? Or is that like just in, a, in an extreme case if, if it, it really becomes a dangerous situation that you've got to get out there and you've, you've got to fill that hole up?
1: Right. You know, there's, there's a whole idea of once you're aware that there's an issue, you have to respond to it. And so every DOT that I know of, uh, at the end of a storm, they're on pothole patrol trying to head off any damage that may occur. And, you know, it's, it's not, uh, it's not a permanent fix that a lot of folks make, but they're out there trying to Fill those holes and get get material to stay in there for multiple days, so that they can get back and make a permanent repair when when it's more opportune, when weather is better, when traffic uh, is not as heavy. So, you know, nobody likes to get the calls from the highway patrol on Friday evening that there's a a big pothole that's opened up on on the freeway.
0: Yeah, you know, when when you're out on social media, the um, the gifts are are amazing uh, people poking fun at uh, potholes and how bad they are and, and everything. They, they really are the bane of the highway department. And it doesn't really matter whether you were with where you're with the state or a local or a city uh, potholes don't discriminate.
1: No, they don't. They, they happen everywhere.
0: Great. What's the strategy for dealing with a pothole in the wintertime?
1: Yeah. So, so research excuse me, research has shown that if, if you do good pothole repair practices, that your potholes can survive the winter, you know, becoming the maintenance engineer and uh, learning about all the different activities that, that we did in Tennessee, pothole patching was one of those. And we looked for standards and guidelines. And so asking folks, uh, well, let's develop a practice on how do we, how do we patch potholes. And, you know, uh, being a, a former pavement guy, I was a little bit appalled at seeing that the throw and go method was actually written out and documented as a viable pothole patching technique. And that's, unfortunately, that's what a lot of our, our maintenance units are forced to do during foul weather, bad conditions, rainy, uh, wet uh, you know, it's just not an opportune time to, to patch mm-hmm. a pavement. And so what what we found in, in doing some research is that if you can do a temporary repair like that, but then come back with some uh, hot asphalt materials or a, a concrete mixture, if you're dealing with a rigid pavement, but then following some really good patching techniques, you know, sawing the boundaries of a of a patch to be placed, removing the the bad material without damaging that sound pavement around a pothole, placing the material in there in lifts, making sure that you're working on a sound foundation. Uh, those are maybe in a different order, but and then getting good compaction on that pavement that needs to happen because this is like doing surgery. You always want to mm-hmm. hear your surgeon say, "We got it all." when we were in there doing our work. So when we're patching, that's the kind of methodology that leads to a successful patch is treating that vulnerable area uh, with the very best construction techniques so that you get a a good performing patch afterwards and you don't have to go back to that spot. That's Mm -hmm. that's a lot of what I I believe makes us successful is not having to fight that fire twice. So if we can keep from... From patching the same spot over and over again, or chasing a spot down the highway, then then we are successful.
0: Yeah, you know, and and of course, when you're done patching, you are left with a crack, right? <laughs> That's I mean, there's right. no way to
1: get around it. Yes, let's and, seal that crack. So,
0: <laughs> let's get the crack sealed up good, right? Um, you know, I've seen some of these um, new tools, right, where they have the spray-in patching material and and things like that. Uh, have you do you have any experience with that I seen-
1: do yeah we did a project for the Ohio Department of Transportation looking at their spray spray patching practices some people call those dura patchers and they can be a, a viable way of of putting a, a patch in uh, we saw those kinds of patches lasting for about three years on average uh, for the Ohio Department of Transportation if they're installed right uh, you have to have mm-hmm. to do a little bit of compaction afterwards, uh, ideally. But there are uh, there are uh, successful methods like that. Coal mix can work very well if you use uh, good construction practices. Well, and you know, in, in the
0: winter time, it's really hard to find a plant that's making hot mix uh, for you to use. So, you, so it really sort of ties your hands when you're working in the winter time.
1: That is true. Some folks have found success in using reheater boxes or the oil jacketed truck bodies that can hold three to five tons of hot mix and keep it insulated for multiple days. So you're, again, leveraging your, your relationships with those uh, asphalt plants that may only make mix two days a week or something like that. But you're uh, certainly in urban areas, you have more opportunity than out in a rural area. You know, when when we talk about things that
0: damage the pavement, of course, that water crack combination is like at the top of the list, but there's some other things that that can cause problems for the pavement in the wintertime as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, uh, the first thing that uh, when I asked some of my colleagues, what do you think issues are for pavements in winter weather, uh, they said friction. And so that's, that's one of the things that that we try to do good intelligence in snow fighting is, is trying to figure out when friction is, is restored to the pavement. So uh, that was one of the things we talked about. We talked specifically about de-icing chemicals and there's, there's a lot of um, mystery, I think about what uh, damage occurs to pavements with the, with the chemicals that we place. And so, we don't really know what uh, what damage can be done to an asphalt pavement by our deicing chemicals. Uh, there's been a lot of work though on uh, concrete pavements, looking at the damage that can be uh, caused by deicing chemicals. Mag chlorides, potassium acetates, those types of chemicals that may be more environmentally friendly are actually more harmful to concrete pavements than oh, just really? the they just a uh, normal sodium chloride that we may be using.
0: I, I know the bridge engineers, they they get kind of excited when you start putting, you know, the salt, the, br- the salt brines, the calcium chlorides, the mag chloride brines on their bridge decks. How would you go about figuring out if your particular situation is susceptible or not?
1: Uh, well, uh, there again, are your joints healthy? Are your, do you have pathways already created that chemicals are going to be capable of entering into your into your pavement structure what we what we really rely on is that folks don't over apply they look at their forecasts. they make make good decisions they apply only when they need to and they apply the the recipe or the the treatment that's called for in that kind of circumstance so that's what the recommendation is. You know, we think it's safe and effective and it's at the right time. So trying not to overapply apply and, and doing more damage than maybe absolutely necessary.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's an excellent point. And uh, Greg, you know, and that's, that's something that that we preach all the time. It's it's like, you know, there's, there's a lot of exotic blends and a lot of exotic chemicals and things like that out there. The The real trick is putting down just what you need. Sometimes that's easier said than done, but it, it, it's like uh, I, I don't know. That's, that's like the, the, the most important takeaway. I think is you know use the tools that that are appropriate, but only use what you need to use.
1: Right, and that's you know making uh making good decisions using the maintenance decision support systems. Uh, that's that's very very similar to operating a pavement management system and identifying. Uh, When is the condition right to trigger a treatment that is just right for that pavement? You know, I I often tell folks in training that, you know, I want you to be an American picker. I want you to recognize that antique and be able to uh, identify that's just right. I've got a market for that. I'm going to get a big return on my investment in doing that. So being able to apply just the right amount of, the icing chemical, uh, anti-icing strategies, just in the in the nick of time, uh, is very important.
0: You know, one thing I see out here on on Interstate eighty, for example, uh, on the mountain passes where trucks run a lot of chains, is y- you get an awful lot of chain wear. It, I mean, it is just amazing how chains will rut up a pavement uh, in the winter time.
1: Absolutely. That's uh, exactly um, where I live in Spokane, Washington. We have ruts in concrete bridge decks due to the abrasion from studded tires and tire chains and and that sort of thing. So, uh, we typically, you know, even though that's a a defect for pavements, uh, we typically think of that as stable rutting. It's not happening because of uh, material weakness necessarily. And so, Uh, There are several treatments that can be implemented there to repair that. You can either uh, apply a leveling course, you can mill to remove the ruts. Uh, There are some microsurface treatments that uh, fill ruts, and then you can get a a stable riding surface. And even here in Washington, the Washington State DOT, I've seen them do uh, strip seals, where they do chip seals only in the wheel paths to uh, correct that, that rutted cross section. So that's a little bit uncommon across the country. I don't see many folks doing that, but that's an innovation that they have implemented. And, you know, they let that be their riding surface for a couple of years, and then they come back and, and globally treat the pavement full width, and they get they get a really good result out of that filling ruts don't have the bleeding then that that may be associated with trying to fill a rutted cross section with just your your binder and chip combination
0: yeah i mean it's almost like a sacrificial surface right i mean that's right it's like you put it out there you know it's going to get worn off and you know you've got to got to take care of it you know the other thing that the other thing that gets chewed up pretty good in the winter time are our pavement markings it's like almost inevitable that uh after a few snowstorms, those things get to be very difficult to see.
1: Uh, you're, yes, that is uh, another good point. The the plows, the abrasion. There's a lot of or abrasive materials. There's a lot of forces on those pavement markings. Uh, I see a lot of raised pavement markers or or pavement markers that are recessed, uh, which creates mm-hmm. uh, its own wintertime issues around that. Around that pavement marking, but uh, providing good driving guidance for for people using the roadways—that's important. And so, uh, whether you're recessing your pavement markings to keep them out of contact with with the blades, you know there are a lot of steps being taken across the country to make those pavement markers better, more durable. So, thermoplastics, other urethanes, even high-build paints can be effective. But um, mm-hmm. there is going to be some abrasion, so being able to apply those again in in springtime is a a good asset management tool to maintain the condition of your uh, lines.
0: Yeah, one of the things one of the things we were doing there for a while is actually milling in a I, I mean just just a not very deep at all, but along the the skippy lines along the the pavement markings just just taking a little bit of material off, so when we put our thermoplastic down in there, it doesn't stand proud, right? It it's like at the level of the pavement, and it seemed like we were getting m- more longevity out of that. Uh, of course, it's expensive, you know. It is expensive, but, um, and and of course the the pavement guys they always freak out when when you want to start milling on a on a pavement when you want to start recessing it because. It's an avenue for water to stick around, right? And water's our enemy. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's like every solution has a problem.
1: Well said, Rick.
0: Where a lot of states are using rumble strips. Do you see in, in your pavement experience, do you see issues with those milled-in rumble strips, you know, having issues with with water and, and in the wintertime?
1: Yeah, there are there are issues with water and rumble strips. You know that's that's part of that's part of the engineering process. I think is trying to weigh safety enhancements that get made to to pavements versus the things that can affect life expectation and and performance of of pavements. So I know that the the MAC uh, subcommittee on or, or the maintenance committee, Ashto maintenance committee, now has been looking for innovative solutions for preserving uh, rumble strips and how those those work. So looking at fog seals or other sealants, there's some bio-friendly sealants that are often placed on longitudinal joints or other areas of, of vulnerable pavement to help seal those up can do some benefit for you. Uh, you know, I really like striping material as a sealant. I think it's, as it resists water, you know, there's a, there's a debate. Do you stripe the joint or do you, uh, hang back off the joint so you can crack fill it later? And I'm, I'm a fan of, uh, painting or, uh, striping right on that joint because I think that gives you a, typically a uniform coating over that, over the joint and, uh, can't help resist uh, water intrusion there.
0: I, I know there was always huge debate. Uh, do you put that joint like a foot off the center line or do you put that joint right on the center line? And and I think you could ask five pavement engineers their opinions and you would get six different opinions on that.
1: I'm one. sure I can argue okay. both sides. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm with you. The uh, You know, Greg, from a, I, I was just going to no, go say, ahead. there's a lot of things that we do in pavement construction that help us uh, during the winter. Uh, being able to place materials without segregation, you know, keeping, keeping a, a mixture uniform, keeps those thermal segregation spots perhaps from becoming weak spots and permeable spots in our pavement. So, if we do a good job of constructing, that can eliminate a lot of the construction defects that lead to potholes. Later, lead to those areas where water mm-hmm. intrudes. So it's a it's an all-encompassing effort to try to get a, a pavement well constructed and and to live out its life.
0: So, Greg, take off your pavement engineer hat and put on your roadside hat. What are some things, leftovers from your winter maintenance program that impact the roadside environment?
1: So I think primarily i'm thinking about the use of abrasives and trying to keep those out of drainage systems so that they function when the spring rains come and as our uh, snowmelt happens and we get higher water thinking about how do we maintain our storm drainage ditches you know in in tennessee we had a uh, not exactly the roadside environment, but areas around our, our sheds had it been maintained very well. So we had some uh, coastal marshlands forming around some of our uh, salt sheds on the Cumberland Plateau. So certainly paying attention to those environmental needs to to control where our de-icers are. I also had a uh, really uh, active stormwater, coordinator who told me that i should use up all my salt brine at the end of the winter you know not not have that risk to uh, roadside damage so i was always trying to figure out a better way to predict when the end of winter was you know we we uh, mm-hmm. fill them back up to try to be ready for the next event and, and uh, don't quite know if this is the last one or not so that was, right. uh,
0: and the last thing you want to do is get get caught with your pants down, so to speak.
1: Right? That, yeah, that that'd be a stretch goal. You know, how do we know uh, when it's time to not refill our salt brine tanks again? So, you know, worried about the environmental impacts. I know that a lot of folks in the sounds in the marshland areas they're worrying about, or or trying to limit the amount of product that's going into that watershed. So, just recognizing that. Uh, the vegetation the wildlife the natural environment that abuts our highways and roadways you know we have to take care of that
0: and you know when you think about that it's not just the chemical piece you know people think oh we're going to use abrasives right because they're benign they they don't have any chemicals with them etc they're they're kind of the the go-to right it's the safe solution but but in reality those those abrasives uh really do have some difficult you know, impacts from air quality, water quality issues, the drainage issues. You know, It builds up underneath your guardrails. You got to clean that out. It really isn't as benign as you think it might be.
1: That's right. Many of the states I'm familiar with down south went away from using abrasives completely and just tried to uh, de-ice, anti-ice, storage issue for them. Uh, and then the the cleanup efforts afterwards made a policy decision to not not use abrasives.
0: Just to add one thing, you know, it's in a previous podcast, you know, we talked about the importance of budget. And and when it comes to severe weather, the weather always wins the budget war. I mean, it's like you're not going to not respond because oh, I only have this much budget allocated for winter. Uh, I don't know that there's a DOT director or secretary of transportation out there that would tell their folks, oh, uh, we're running short of budget. You guys need to go home. But what happens is it impacts your ability to do the kinds of things you need to do in the summertime. And I guess the, the important takeaway is paying attention to business in the wintertime so that. You can have some resources for the summer because winter is a 12 month out of the year adventure for a lot of states.
1: You're right. Uh, so where I, where I am from, uh, the fiscal year breaks in June 30th is the end. July 1st begins a new fiscal term, and so winter is the unknown in the middle, and so. You know, some of the steps that we took to try to minimize the impact on our budget were to calibrate our um, trucks so that we knew what what application rates we were putting out. And, you know, we had, in Tennessee, uh, we had one year in particular where we were on salt conservation mode. That's what we called it, uh, because... Our supplier wasn't able to deliver salt as we had anticipated, and so we started the year with full bins, but had a heavy December, which is not typical for East Tennessee, and they began to call for refills, and the the vendor just couldn't deliver. They were operationally uh, hindered and couldn't get material to us, and so uh, we went to salt conservation mode and, you know, began telling folks don't use more than half of what you have overnight. Uh, and so it, it, uh, uh, there was even a call put out nationwide. I think, uh, could anybody help, uh, Tennessee get some more salt? And we approached, uh, industrial partners that had never supplied salt to us for some industrial salts and, Uh, even, even my friend, Chris Christopher from the Washington state called me up and said, Greg, we've got salt reserves in Utah. If you want to go get them, uh, and (laughs) so that was (laughs) just send some dump trucks to Utah, Tennessee, right? That was a challenging, that was a challenging winter. But right after that happened, we did an analysis of, uh, why we, why we should, uh, put those, uh, feeders and, uh, calibration devices on our trucks and the, the retrofit costs, uh, I can remember this, uh, it was like $7 million. And so at the time, Tennessee had a, a winter maintenance budget of about $26 million. So that may be uh, pretty small for some of your, uh, compared to some of your listeners, but this was, uh, you know, 15 years ago, but, we figured that if we had one storm that really uh, caused us to turn up those distribution cranks, that we could break even in one storm and have have calibrated devices. And again, uh, use good decisions, put down just the right amount of material, have have a mechanism for hotspot treatment or something like that, but not over-applying the, the material. And so... Uh, the analogy that we came away with is you can either buy a ton of salt in the wintertime or you can buy a ton of asphalt in the summertime. And our folks like to get their roads repaved and get ahead of the pavement preservation curve. So that was uh, an impetus for them to see that, you know, I can manage my salt outflow better and um, do just what's needed and and still have safe passable roadways in in an expected uh time frame so uh, we learned some lessons the hard way but it was i think a good opportunity to adopt modern technology to be able to do that
0: so do you have any good stories about the big storm from tennessee
1: (laughs) oh there's so many rick uh (laughs) yeah it's uh you know the the Flood of 2010, the Great Potato Truck Incident. There's, there's a lot of good um, backstory there that could be shared. Really teachable moments that happened in real time. So did we? Did That's we great. miss anything? Did we leave anything out? Yeah, I didn't share the limerick. What's the limerick? So it says uh, there once was a pothole so deep that it caused drivers to weep. They swerved and they swerved, but the pothole they served and their tires all fell in a heap.
0: <laughs> the pothole limerick. Well, Greg, thanks uh, for sharing your thoughts and, and expertise and, and really the rest of the story when it comes to winter maintenance.
1: You're welcome, Rick. Happy to be here.
0: As always, if there's a topic you'd like more information on, or if you know somebody with an interesting story we should visit with, like Greg and the leftovers from winter weather, send me or Scott Lucas at the Ohio DOT an email, and we'll do our best to make it happen. Psychop Talks Winter Ops is available on all the major podcast content providers. Give us a like and subscribe on your favorite so you'll never miss an episode. In addition, you can find episodes on our Facebook page, Ashto Psychop, and our website, psychop.transportation.org. Support for PSYCOP comes from state DOTs who make an annual contribution of $4,000. It's because of those states that PSYCOP Talks, Winter Ops, and all the other resources to help you achieve your winter maintenance mission are possible. Until next time, thanks for listening in and stay safe out there.